of sustainability, sustainability, sustainability in loyalty. So I think what won't happen, but what should, is uh, big organisations start literally putting at the top table, effectively, if you like, a chief loyalty officer, which is, which is not just the customer, which is actually focused on the engaged customer, and then you work across the business to get more people into that pot. I think that's something that's needed, but it won't happen. There you go. And I know it's against the run of play and coalition, but I think there may be, in the next 12 months or 24 months, the appearance of one of the big over-the-top providers with a global programme that has a global scale. Okay, hi, I'm Ian Pringle, and this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty, where we help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. So I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is on wishing people a happy new year, but it's now, what, the uh, 21st of January, and this is the first time we've had an opportunity to get enough of us in a room together, or at least enough of us on a call together, so sorry for that, but happy new year to everyone. Um, before we get started with our predictions for 2020, thank you to everyone who filled in the survey. As with all things in life, it's easy just to crack on, cracking on, but actually hearing what you like most about the podcast and to get the suggestions has been massively valuable, so thank you very much. This week, as we launch into a new decade, we'll be giving our predictions for the year ahead, and to help me on this, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Lyers in Brighton. Hi, Alan. How are you doing, Ian? Fantastic. And uh, David Canty, Atlanta. Hi, David. Hi Ian. Hi Alan. Happy uh, 2020. Uh, Happy a whole new, a whole new decade for for loyalty. Mm. Exactly. Exciting times ahead. Now to get things started tonight, can we just go around and just give us a quick introduction? I think most of us have been on this podcast several times. So, quick introduction to ourselves, and then can you finish the sentence? 2020 will be the year of. Um, who would like to start that off? Um, David, how would you like to start us off on that one? Hi, uh, I'm Dave Canty, formerly of IHG, ran Global Loyalty for IHG for four and a half years. Pre that, worked with JetBlue for eight years and developed their loyalty program, the first revenue-based program in the United States for a major airline. And pre that, um, I dabbled in retail with AutoZone and started off my career with ITT Sheraton, spent 11 years with Starwood for Guest. With regards to 2020, I believe that 2020 is going to be the year of sustainability, sustainability, sustainability in loyalty. And I also believe that um, subscription-based programs are making a comeback. They're part of our everyday life. Certainly outside of travel, they are at least when you start thinking about Netflix and Amazon Prime. But we're starting to see some of the airlines get back into play. I mean, Vueling have been doing some great stuff in the, the subscription-based uh, models. And we've recently seen Delta um, get into that space um, and I, I think United have also just announced some some things. Um, There's also that so, interesting Mexican example as well, where they uh, they're trying to get people from buses onto aircraft using a subscription model. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think subscriptions and, and it, it's a, it's almost a, a, a step back to the past. This isn't it? So it's a, your prediction for the future, but actually, subscription models in travel existed a long time existed for some time as well, and then they seem to disappear for a few years, and now they're back. 
You know, and someone who's very interested, as somebody who's very interested in the changing dynamics of the generational shifts, uh, which I've been kind of focused on over the last eight months or so, I would all, uh, you, you can almost mirror Gen Zs with boomers um, in the sense that things that resonated with boomers are starting to resonate more with Gen Zs again. And I don't know if that's because they have they were born in a digital age and they're much more into human element, but they also like control. They like to be in control of what they're consuming and what they're purchasing. And that's where I see uh, subscription-based programs be, uh, resonating with them uh, much more so than it did with millennials or Gen Xers. Yeah, no, it's interesting. The other thing is I think it's interesting in the, about the subscription model is it's a much smaller base of your big base, but actually it's such an important segment that I think it's going to be getting more and more focus. Um, well, they, they, they essentially, when somebody buys into your program or pays a fee, they are self-selecting and they are expecting to get something back from it. So they're, you're basically entering into a contract and whether you be an airline or whether you be a retailer or whether you be a hotelier, when you enter into that contract, there is an expectation that you will deliver the promise of uh, the, uh, the, the value proposition of that subscription-based program. And I think that's something that does appeal to the younger generation. And it's, commercial, it's commercially viable now as well and attractive to the, the, the major travel organizations. I think with some of the economic elements that are happening on a geo level, uh, when you see, we've all been in airlines, all three of us, and we've always kept our eyes on the price of oil and what that does to an airline's economics. And um, I think as the oil prices start to take up, airlines will start looking at ways to ensure that their ancillary side is, is offsetting any uh, cost on that side. Just a thought. It's, it's, it's really interesting as well because I think in the grocery market they're they're looking at um, subscriptions because of different headwinds. So, for example, Tesco, where they've launched their subscription service in the UK, um, I think that hits a number of strategic uh, buttons because with the move of grocery in the UK, it's been away from the big out of town centres into the into more shopping, lower basket spends in local shops, um, and also they they're under a lot of pressure for for, for building. Um, building the basket and building share of wallet and i think the move from tesco to to a subscription model within their club card hits all of those strategic buttons you know it's saying actually you have to get 10 percent off two big shops um for a fee and that drives the use of the out of town big shops that aren't getting the usage that they were getting before it and it drives share of wallet and actually it's capped anyway at 250 pounds for each of those spends so i just think it's a win-win-win for tesco and uh and it's not been driven by the fuel price, but it's been driven by other commercial drivers. And uh, Alan, can you share your views on what you think is going to happen in 2020? Of course. Hello, Alan Lias here. Um, I've been loyalty consulting for the last just over three years. Um, and before that, for 12 years, I was vice president of loyalty and ancillary revenue development for Virgin Atlantic. And before that, I worked in organizations like American Express and Total Energy, always involved with consumer marketing in some shape or form with primarily the objective of trying to retain and grow customer value. Um, and I'm delighted that subscription has come up, not because I haven't got any imagination. I just like to copy what you guys were saying. Um, my first client is Collinson. And I've been spending 
the last two and a half years working on a subscription product for them. And funny enough, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to work in, in, in other verticals, not just travel. Um, but pretty much whether you're a financial services company or a retailer, you're sort of interested in how travel loyalty works because the metrics are so compelling, not just from a sort of what it does to the overall company performance, but what loyalty in itself creates in terms of uh, shareholder value. Um, and for me, actually, as we think about subscription, you know, you, uh, the points you just made, guys, were spot on, which is um, you need a customer base in mind. And, and maybe if we step back, you know, if you were starting any loyalty program today that had preferred customers in it or more valuable customers in it, um, airlines, of course, you know, they're well known for their tier pro- programs. Those tier programs are made available once a customer has invested enough in that airline in terms of spending money flying. But actually, if you were designing an airline program from scratch, funny, I've got Mr. Candy here who created the first revenue-based accrual program, you'd actually create your top tiers as subscription-based programs. They'd have a fee. You may have one or two or three, and each one, obviously, depending on how much you spend, would kick in different value. Immediately, therefore, you are able to customize your experience. But of course, what would happen is if you are one of those customers that values that product, and exploits the value from that product by using it a lot, actually, at some point, you will generate enough income and revenue for, in this case, the airline, but it could apply to any company, to actually warrant getting that valuable subscription for free. So actually, what you do is you build economics into the tiers, as well as um, providing a milestone, if you like, for people who want to get into that tier without actually having to pay for it. I get the subscription argument, but have these programs not in effect had subscription for many years in the form of annual fees and sometimes very big annual fees for premium credit cards that have accelerated earn rates and additional benefits? I think, I mean, I think, I mean, I, mean, I spent 10 years at American Express working on their range of products. And of course, fundamentally, American Express cards, uh, and now obviously there are you know other banks that issue fee-based cards, the perks that they come with tend to be things like accelerated earning and travel-related perks, whether it be insurances or lounge or whatever. I think the difference between a travel and a, uh, and a, and a, a travel program or an airline program and a bank program is in the end, the bank has always tr- been trying to muscle in on fundamentally what the best stuff is that the travel company offers. And frankly, the crown jewels of the airline experience is the through the airport experience as well as the onboard experience. And much as points are valuable, which will be my second prediction for 2020, by the way, um, much as points are valuable and and banks can fund points uh, and therefore get customers who carry airline cars, for example, or, or proprietary cars to their goals more quickly, you don't have access to what an airline does best. Airline lounges are not accessible by credit cards. Um, and preferred customer handling experiences, getting out through the airport privileges are not offered as part of co-brands. So I guess what the idea here is, and whichever, whether you're Amazon or whether you're Tesco or whether you're um, Delta, um, you've got certain strategic assets that you can make available for a subscription. The minute you give them out, e.g. to a bank, even a premium credit card like Centurion, um, Centurion is possibly the only exception. There are some airlines that will grant you, not so much airlines these days, but some hotels will grant you instant status if you're a Centurion. But fundamentally, it's how do organizations use subscription to give 
fast track access to their best stuff, not to give it to someone else. So that's my, I guess, my difference there between credit cards and airlines, because in the end, credit card is a payment tool. And that's all you can do with it. My other prediction for 2020 and the 20s is actually, I think organizations are going to fall in love with loyalty points again, because points are never going to go away. And there's so much talk about what can we do instead of points. And the reality is that I think the points business has to develop and increase relevance to customers. But the great thing about points-based businesses, if they're run right, um, they will deliver significant performance. And surprise and delight is probably the nearest thing that's come to it. But as we all know, to deliver a proper surprise and delight uh, program, you can only offer it really to a very, very small segment of your customers. So I'm predicting old school points will come back into, into fashion again. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm I'm in a surprise and delight wedding. I'm in a surprise and delight marriage. Um, you know, my wife gets flowers every now and again, but it doesn't really last me very long these days. And <laughs> <laughs> now, if I buy her flowers, she asks me, "What have I done wrong?" So, <laughs> you know, well, when, when I send when I when I send her flowers, she's really happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, guys, I'm not entirely sure that that points ever went out of fashion. Yeah, it's a good point. I uh, see. Uh, that's a that's a well, good point. It, I think it leads. I think. I think one of the reasons they might have done is is that because points based schemes have been around so long, it's course. You know, when when people come along to start looking at these programs, people that are new to these programs, senior management that are new to these programs, it's natural to want to do something different. That's all. So I think they get challenged, and I think often, and there's a leadership question here often. The people who run loyalty programs in organizations are not at the very top table. They're somewhere probably in the marketing area or in the commercial area. They don't necessarily have the, the gravitas to actually put the, case, the cases across properly. And if you think about how loyalty programs are, you could argue, underinvested in habitually by organizations in terms of the overall marketing spend and share of that marketing spend. I think loyalty programs haven't been that good at demonstrating to the organisations that they're a part of the value they bring. But that could be a, another subject in itself. No, I, I you know, um, as somebody who's run programs like yourself, I've always felt that um, you you get you you get challenged within um, your your different organisations about the performance of the loyalty program. And there's an expectation that comes with it. And while we kind of sit within, it's kind of, it, it, it seems obvious to us that the mechanics and the, the points elements are all working. Um, and I'm not entirely sure we've ever done a good job in explaining it outside of our own kind of fishbowl, aside from talking about your, your uh, KPIs and so forth, but distilling it down to a simple story of this is why we use points and these are the behaviors of our customers once they actually get the flavor of the value um, through redemption and being able to, to demonstrate the change in behavior there. I think, I think that is important. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head there, David. I think those, there's two conversations that happen within an organization, as you know. There's the conversation that happens with marketing about those beautiful things you just talked about, about the customer. And then there's the discussions with finance and revenue management. And um, 
that's a completely different conversation. It can go, can go completely different ways. And you can walk out of, out of a meeting and think, what the hell just happened there? <laughs> yeah. Why did and we make I, that decision? Because the customer's never mentioned. And we've ended up cutting, cutting, cutting. And these things happen. Yeah, I agree. And I, th- I, think, I think a good loyalty leader really needs to uh, be able to stand behind their program in those finance, uh, those finance team meetings. Um, it's important for you to own it and be accountable for it um, and be able to explain it to the finance teams because you ultimately don't want the finance team setting the strategy. Um, they're, ex- they're expecting you as the loyalty expert to be able to carry it forward. So, and you can see it a mile away, can't you? When, when you look at a program, you can see that, that finance have had their hands on it or you, you know, you, and the customers can as well. It's not, you don't need to be a genius to see that. Right. And, and um, you know, once you kind of give in to that, you end up putting the, the, the program, your team and uh, the whole concept of loyalty in a defensive posture uh, within the organization. And that's not a, not a great place to be because loyalty programs can really, really amplify the brand um, and can really create that's one of the reasons why they're called loyalty programs um, is because they can they can really demonstrate attachment to your brand uh, through return rates and and so forth. So going forward, I think it's important for us to not kind of come from a position of well the reemergence of points programs because that to me is coming from a defensive position. I think there are ways in which we can utilize points better certainly add more value and be able to demonstrate the activity um, of members once they use those points. But I also think that if, if organizations want to have a loyalty program, and, uh, and I've heard a bunch of them now since I've been uh, consulting, where the first thing I get is, I don't particularly want a points program. Well, that's all well and good, but the mechanics of loyalty are steeped in um, in hurdles and having people hurdle. Now, you don't have to have points exposed, but you can measure the behavior of somebody in the background through a points or a credit-based um, uh, program. And how, how, it com- how it manifests itself in real life then is more a contextual element. So um, I do think that points programs have proven themselves year over year over year and decade decade over decade and now we're going into a new decade i mean i think i'd build on that is i so i'm hi i'm, I'm ian pringle i'm uh i've been have 25 years experience in working loyalty programs started in shell uk and then worked at edf energy with nectar and then um had some time with air miles before it became avios and then with virgin atlantic so i think i've, I've been around a bit um i think what i'd say is building a, a bit on that what you were saying there david is um I think that points programs will still be around. Of course, I think they will. But I think there'll be a move towards not necessarily emotional loyalty, but meaningful loyalty. I think that programs now need to stand for something more than the points of which they're made up of or the, the mechanic so that customers can say, I, I, feel, I feel something for that brand or feel something for that loyalty program. And it means more to me than just the transactions of which it takes part. And the good examples of that is I've talked about it before on this podcast, but Shell, I really like what they're doing with the carbon offsetting. But equally, Scandinavian Airlines are doing something similar where they're not just offering carbon offset as a redemption option, which no one, quite frankly, takes up. 
they're saying, if you're part of the Frequent Flyer programme, we're going to offset for you. And I think that's a far stronger message. And I think that's where things are going to go, as as in the, the programme needs to be more than just the selfish uh, selfish collection of points. Or that, 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 that there has to be something that stands out in the programme. Makes yeah, it and, different. Well, well, JetBlue have taken that one step further, I think, yeah. because they just announced that they're offsetting all domestic flights, regardless you're, uh, everything's going to be offset by the airline. Um, I, and I, I, but I think that's a, that's a brand positioning. I think uh, still my, my comment still stands about, about the programme, is that if the programme then gives something, and I'm not necessarily just talking about carbon offset, I'm talking about you know, surprise and delight elements or all sorts of other things, I just think it needs to mean more than just the transactions because I think there's not enough feeling, there's not enough, uh, not enough engagement in transactions anymore. I think that it's a bit me too now. Um, and we'll see how that develops over the over the year, but I do think that that managers need to be thinking how can mine stand out by giving by meaning something more about my brand and saying something more about my my organization than just simply collecting and redeeming for a toaster i agree um well when we start thinking about sustainability we we generally go to offsetting, and I'm wondering are there other ways in which you can engage your base? beyond the currency to to really start looking at environmental issues and 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 so forth and i think there are because one of the things i mentioned earlier on is you know building attachment to your brand and building advocacy for your brand and in some cases it does come back to to the brand positioning and i i i do believe that you you've got a a fertile customer base within your loyalty program that you can reach out to and start a movement and basically say, these are the things that we're passionate about as a brand. Would you like to help us to do that? Um, I agree. And I do think that's important. I think this is really interesting. And I, you know, you, you David made sustainability one of your first uh, imperatives, I guess, and developments for this year. And, and the decade to come. And actually, I think, you know, frequent flyer programs in particular, but airline loyalty programs generally have got a real problem because by definition, they encourage people to fly more and, and create more carbon. So the question is, uh, and yes, of course, it is an enterprise-wide, if you're an airline or any other travel company, frankly, enterprise-wide issue, how you solve this. And it's about as much about the brand and the core businesses as about the program itself. But I think... You know, if you couple what's going on with, for example, the other things are, are going to are starting to generate significant amounts of change. So if you look at uh, what GDPR is doing, and basically a customer now has the ability to request that their usage information is shared with other organizations. The ownership of that data is very much with the customer and the transportability of that information is something that has to be complied with or there's significant fines. How a customer optimizes their total travel and looks at spreading, taking their total data and actually sharing that with a number of different organizations and to try and optimize, I guess, the journey, not just flying, but maybe trains as well. That whole combination of history um, and understanding could be where initiatives come into place to minimize overall carbon. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting, although I think that one of the things I wrote down is what's not going to be a trend in this year is transportability of data. Because, I mean, people have talk, heard me talk in, in conferences about GDPR and how, how you know, the transferability of data is so massively important. And it will be a huge thing in the future. But I think the problem at the moment is validation. You know, I've, I've tried to get data out of companies and had to provide my passport as a means of identification. And so to get data from one company to another, even though the GDPR absolutely forces customers to partners to do it, it's going to be a while before people are taken to court and forced to give it up. But I, I agree with your sentiment, but I think it's going to be a while before that becomes natural. I think you're right, Ian. It's just, it's a 2020s thing more than a 2020 thing. It's a 2020s thing. thing. Yeah, I, I think someone's going to get burnt in court before that happens. Um, now, moving on, what should we do some predictions for what is not going to change? We have all sat at conferences and we've all heard people talk about the future. So let's say, let, let, let's, let's give it large with what we think is not going to happen. Who'd like to lead off on that one? <laughs> um, what's not going to happen? Yeah. But let, let's have Alan go first. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll go, I'll go. All right. Go and, and I tell you what, it's something, I'm, it's, it's not controversial. I hopefully, I know we, we violently agree with each other a lot. Maybe we can disagree about this, but I think we won't. Forever. Well, you two are going to grow hair? Yeah. <laughs> I've got it all in the wrong places at the moment, David. So, and it's getting it's getting worse. But that's that's another podcast uh, after dark. Um, the, the 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 imperative to, to, to Ian's point about look, actually, when's it all going to happen? Because the data sets are a mess. You know, we have been talking for thirty. I've been talking for thirty years. For, for how do we how do when do organisations get to the point where they really sort out their data and they stick it into one? enterprise-wide CRM, CRM system, multiple touch points, and that really underpins how you fundamentally drive emotional loyalty. I don't think, I don't even think in the 2020s we're going to get mass rollout of a single enterprise CRM system. That's my prediction or prediction yes. of nothing. Yes. But, but um, what, honestly, what, what is a CRM system? And, and who does it serve? Because so many different entities seem to have a... A, a view on this. So is CRM serving the customer? Is it serving the sales team? Is it generating leads? When we talk about CRM, are we talking about CRM from a customer recognition perspective? Yeah. Because yeah. this... I think though, we're David, talking about... When, when, you, when you're talking to a company, um, often people talk about segmentation. Whereas I, when I was working at, at, at Airmiles, at Avios, um, it was Airmiles at the time, we had 120 different segments. And that's because each of those different segmentations, there was about six different segmentations that all had a purpose. And so, you know, you, you, and, and you have to make those things work together. And I think in every organization, you can count them up. So the CRM system, and then obviously there's numbers of CRM systems that do numbers of jobs. But you're absolutely right. I think the, I've always thought that a single customer view is, is slightly myopic because, um, because of the different views that you have to take from it, you know? Um, I agree. I mean, for me, it's about more accurate customer profiles that you can actually action. And those profiles are based on what people really care about. And also, you know, this whole idea of how do you enable, I guess, how customers enable their data to be used. Now, rather than, you know, what we talked about earlier on was send all my data, my Tesco data, send it all to Sainsbury's and see if they can give me a better deal. Um, what I'm talking about in the context of CRM is a more sort of manageable version of that, which is, look, if I've got 
a whole bunch of infrequent customers. How can I work with other brands to ensure that we actually are, to de- are able to deliver some sort of joined up experience, thus hopefully encouraging our customers to share data with us and actually you know, collect points potentially. And it's how do we deliver personalized engagement uh, through, through all touch points, whether it be our own uh, channels or across a partner infrastructure. That's what I, I see CRM as action. You're right. Segment is, a, oh, is segmentation. It's how do we improve actual action <laughs> as a result of a CRM system um, rather than just um, uh, you know, a repository of profiles. Yeah, and, and just just building on the, the action piece, uh, Alan, I think it's important to think about it from the perspective of essentially what you're trying to do is enable your, um, your frontline employees to be able to service a guest or a customer in a very personal way. And it's leveraging the data that you have. And I, I think Ian spoke about the, the single view of the customer or single source of the truth. I, do th- I don't think that's pie in the sky stuff, but I think that gets, gets lost when we start having these conversations of CRM in big organizations. Uh, I think we need to be a little bit more selfish uh, in the, the loyalty space and say, look, we are the owners of your most engaged customer we are the ones that can enable you and us to deliver a much more personalized service and personalization by the way is a big deal we're hearing about it all the time we haven't mentioned it yet but i do think that using the aggregated data or the single source of data that we have on a customer and and ensuring that we're using it to enable our front line is important. Secondary, secondary to that, it's enabling our marketing and our tactical um, campaigns and, and so forth. But really, it should be about um, how, we're, how, we're in, how we're making customers feel at a personal level and even mm-hmm. on a human level. But, you know, we're, st- we're living in an age where airlines are still writing to customers saying, do you want to take your skis to Amsterdam? So, you know, um, we're still quite a long way away from um, from getting it right. You know, in, um, in no, the, I, think in, in, I think they're anticipating the effect of global warming there. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> the, one I, the one I would come in with, with in the now we're talking about career limiting predictions for the future is uh, <laughs> I think that. Simplicity. Every time we took we loyalty comes up and a journalist talks about loyalty, they just say, "Why can't I just walk into a shop, uh, or why can't I just go to an airline and they just recognise me straight away and I don't have to do anything?" And um, it comes up all the time. And and in a recent survey by Amir about what people want most from loyalty programmes, they want it to be simple and easy and seamless. I would argue that that is a that is a fool's errand. You know, in most cases, simply because if you gave everything to everyone and made it simple and easy then it's very very difficult to to uh separate your engaged customers from your unengaged customers and so um you know i think one of my predictions for what is not going to happen in 2020 is that we will be a radical move towards simplicity i think your your program needs to be easy enough but you still need to cut off the long tail all the time you need to constantly be 
be appealing to your engaged customers and 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 putting the value towards the engaged customers, but making sure you're removing the the tail. What do you guys think about that? Um, I think Easy has got multiple different uh, stakeholders. When we talk about Easy, we generally think about it at the customer level. So we're making it easy for for the customer. But I actually think fundamentally you've got to make it easy for your employees to be able to articulate or talk about the program oh, and what and, sure. and why you should inquire and why you should why why you should join the program and i think organizations forget that they generally think about it okay i'm going to put this out and i'm going to uh, it's going to be easy for the customers to understand we really need to get our employees on up you know we need to put together a whole training program for them get them engaged in the program, get them excited about it, make them members and allow them to experience it all the way through its tiers um, because they, became, they then become the biggest advocates in selling the program and not just selling the program but delivering the, the expectations on it. Once it was you get... one thing that worked really well at Avios. So with that, at Avios, there was, a, there was the staff within Avios when I was there um, were encouraged to join the program and incentivized to join the program and they were the biggest advocates. In fact, some of the biggest collectors within the whole program were people in the in the organization. And that was applauded and supported. So now moving on to sort of game changer predictions. One of the things I think that might happen in 2020 is that we have global loyalty programs around the world. The biggest of which, on the one we, you know, Hilton Honors reached 100 million members last year. And that's a huge number of people. Of course, it is a huge number of active collectors. But that's still only 1% of 7.8 billion people in the world. And if you take nationalities, you know, there's lots of countries in the world where we have over 50% of people in the, in the countries who are members of a specific loyalty program, like Qantas Frequent Flyer in Australia or Air Miles in Canada or the T-Card in Japan. Um, yet we haven't seen the growth of a global big player yet. Yet Apple have 1.4 billion devices out there. Facebook have 2.4 billion active collectors out there. Google have 1.5 billion Gmail accounts. I can't believe there's not people in these organizations thinking, hang on, look at the multipliers that, that the likes of the airlines are getting out of the value of their frequent flyer programs and loyalty programs. And I know it's against the run of play and coalition, but I think there may be in the next 12 months or 24 months, the appearance of one of the big over the top providers with a global program that has a global scale i think it, i think ian it's a it's a very very good point and i i don't think it's millions of miles away from what actually might have what happened i think where you know no disrespect meant to companies like apple go wrong is they do see the airline model they do see all that profit and you know airlines are marking up points at three four hundred percent and they try and emulate it that's the mistake if they want to democratize a points basis. They're not making any money out of points at the moment. If they made a dollar out of the points business, but that drove significant value to their core business and their partners, it's worth doing. So I think if there was an alignment, if 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 someone like an Apple figured out what the perceived value was and sold to partners at the perceived value less a bit, that would generate huge partner income. And then as long as the perceived value is a lot more um, to the to the customer than the perceived effort to collect, they didn't need to be greedy. I think a lot of these big companies, maybe Google are different because they play on tiny margins, huge volumes. Yeah, but I think the, the risk, the... the risk, yeah, the risk to 
for example, the airline hotel sector or the financial services sector, rich points programs, is somebody will come along, like you said, are prepared to make one basis point on every point, but, but democratize that currency. So actually small companies that maybe only see a customer once every two or three years can issue those points very, very cheaply. And actually the, the mid sort of the mid section of your customer base who often never get anywhere to get enough points, the disengaged suddenly have an easier way to get engaged to spread their spending power. Generally speaking, as we've said before in this podcast, people with higher spending power collect more points and it's more meaningful. These programs tend to aim at mass affluent and above. And so an Apple uh, or a Google could do something different. I agree with you. It's a left field one. But if they were looking to not make tons of profit out of it, it could work very well. So finally, before we end, does anyone else have anything they'd like to add? Um, Alan, I think you had an additional one you wanted to mention about um, things that may or may not happen in 2020. I think I think there is a leadership gap. I think, um, you know, you get, you get you know, if you look at the top table of organisations, you get the equivalent of chief well, at least in the States, you might find a chief customer officer. Um, in European companies, it's very rare to find anybody top tables, anything to do with the customer, let alone with do with loyalty. So I think what won't happen, but what should, is uh, big organizations start literally putting at the top table, effectively, if you like, a chief loyalty officer, which is, which is not just the customer, which is actually focused on the engaged customer. And then you work across the business to get more people into that pot. I think that's something that's needed, but it won't happen. There you go. Yeah. Well, just to finish off tonight, I've got one for you, Alan, that I think is going to happen before the end of the year. Um, I think by the end of the year, I'm going to be able to crack into your PC by using your facial recognition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because in a strange quirk of fate, uh, I think we, we, we become looking more and more like each other. We turned up at a meeting. Uh, the people won't, won't, on the podcast, it's a bit of a visual thing. But we turned up at a meeting a couple of weeks ago where we had to check we weren't dressed the same because otherwise we might not be, we might be mistaken for each other. So it's, Listen, it's, it's a strange bald, thing, Alan. But... Yeah, the bald brothers, Ian. Eh? All we need, <laughs> all we need, all we need is a leader. All right, and we and we can we can change the world. Well, that's slightly scary note. I'd like to say thank you to my guests, David Canty and Alan Lias. Thank and thank you very much for listening. If you like the podcast, please like, share and comment using the hashtag LoyaltyPodcast and I'll look forward to seeing you next time and wishing you all a happy 2020. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>